Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. We, as Aboriginal people, still have to fight to prove that we are straight out, plain human beings, the same as everyone else, is a quote by the first Indigenous person to become a member of the Federal Parliament of Australia and an elder of the Jagira people, Neville Bonner. I thought this was an apt quote for our guest today, an Indigenous female, also a federal politician and a strident advocate for the No Camp in the upcoming Voice referendum. Our guest today is the Senator for Northern Territory, Jacinta Nepajinda-Price, who sits at the heart of national political decision-making in the Upper House in Canberra. Following the path of her mother, an Indigenous female and a member of the Northern Territory Legislative Assembly, Jacinta was elected as a councillor on the Alice Springs Council, serving from 2015 to 2021, and was Deputy Mayor in her last year. After running a strong but unsuccessful campaign for the federal seat of Lingari, Jacinta ultimately won pre-selection for the Country Liberals Party's number one Senate ticket and was successfully elected to the Federal Senate in May last year. Aside from political office, Jacinta has been a political commentator and a director for Indigenous Research at the Centre for Independent Studies. After high school and before politics, Jacinta also featured in hip-hop groups and was an actress in children's television programs. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you can apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in the Northern Territory, Queensland, New South Wales, the Australian Capital Territory, Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia and Western Australia, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners Board and Executive Search Firm. In a special edition in the lead up to the referendum, Jacinta provides her perspective on the proposed voice, as well as her personal experience and insights on the challenges facing the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and a vision for the future of Australia and all Australians. So sit back and enjoy. Can't argue with the truth. Jacinta, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. As a first-time senator taking a lead in one of the nation's, I guess, most important decisions in its history, Jacinta, what have you learned about leadership? Leadership for me, I guess, is about bringing everybody along. I've always been a team player. I've captained many footy teams in my time and everyone has a role to play to ensure that, you know, we achieve our goals, we kick that goal, we win the grand final. And everyone has to feel also that they 
have an important role toward the goal. So that for me is really important in terms of leadership and that everyone has to feel like they they have got something to contribute. That That's what's important for me. Getting that goal together is, is, is what it's all about. I'm a team player. I always have been um, and I work best in a team. Why is it worth the price, Jacinta? Like you said, it's a lot of work to do. You're a team player, but it does pay take a toll. Yeah, it absolutely takes a toll. And I think, you know, the bigger, you know, a lot of Australians, well, a lot of people think that politicians aren't human, but we are, of course. We bleed red. We have emotions. We have our down days. Uh, our families are there for us when our pieces fall apart. They help us put our pieces back together. And they play a significant role as well. And I think sometimes I, I have more concern for my family than probably myself. But also, there's a lot of very vulnerable people that I've always fought on behalf of. And if I'm not doing it for them, then my fear is who is doing it for them. And that's what keeps me going. Arming myself with the truth uh, yep. certainly helps. You can't argue with the truth. <laughs> you don't have to think about the, the, the last lie you just made up. Uh, in order to maintain that and really I love this country I love this country and I think Australians uh, have come under attack in recent years you know we've been bullied we've been gaslit we've been told we're a racist country and it is my firm understanding and belief that we're not and I think we have to be proud to call ourselves Australian again so if any if there's anything that's come out of this uh, that I hope to achieve I hope it's that to reignite the Australian spirit and it'll be totally worth it I was just going to ask you about that. What is Australia to you? Australia to me is a, is a is one of the best countries on the face of the earth. A country that's full of incredible opportunities. A place where you have, you know, as we keep saying, the oldest living culture on the face of the earth. We have a successful multicultural community. We have such diversity. We don't even think about it, but it's there. And I think we overthink it at times without appreciating what it is we do have. We have our values and our culture as Australians is something that we have created together, whether we've come from the First Peoples. Uh, you know, my ancestors were convicts as well. Uh, my husband's a new Australian. He's a proud Scozzi. But that mm-hmm. is the remarkable Australian story. Unlike if we contrast us to nations around the world where there's no ethnic differences, but religious differences are, are causing people to kill one another, literally with civil war. We are an incredible nation. And you know, the simple values about mateship and a fair go are really what embodies us as a nation, I believe. Well, in the first paragraph of the Prime Minister's electoral victory speech, he said, on behalf of the Australian Labor Party, I commit to the Uluru Statement from the heart in full. Jacinta, that's the Prime Minister's position. What does that mean to you? Well, it concerns me that the Prime Minister hadn't even read the full Uluru Statement to commit to it in full in the first place. It tells me that is lazy leadership uh, as far as I'm concerned. When the Uluru Statement first came out, I didn't support it. I know many Aboriginal people who didn't support it. As far as they were concerned, this was a group of hand-picked individuals who went off and made this decision on the rest of us based on our racial heritage. I know that there are Senior lawmen from Arnhem, all lawmen, one of which is one of my uncles, Trevor Adamson, who are upset at the fact that the name Uru of a significant sacred site has been uh, exploited for the purpose of a PR campaign. And a lot of Aboriginal people from the bush have been exploited over the years for these political campaigns. And that is what I'm fighting to stop. So 
it concerns me that this is a, uh, a prime minister who is hell bent on having his Whitlam moment, his Redfern speech moment. He wants to be the man that was behind the Uluru statement from the heart uh, and the voice, uh, as opposed to actually really taking a practical approach toward improving the lives of our most marginalised. Yeah, a lot of controversy, I guess, in regards to the Uluru statement of the heart but, uh, between the, the one-page statement and the 26-page version, I guess, described by some as background information. But it makes reference, particularly on that 26-page or 20, 25 pages, to sovereignty, treaty, and without reparations and truth-telling, where do you stand on, on all that? That's obviously crux, which then moves, obviously moves to, to the voice. Yeah, look, it demonstrates that the architects of the voice aren't actually interested in proving the lives of our most marginalised. That is their right. agenda behind it. It is treating, it is reparations and compensation, and we have to be reminded that these are individuals who have had a seat at the table for decades who have been responsible for millions of dollars to improve the lives of our most marginalised, and what do they have to show for it? And they are seeking a transfer of power through our constitution, through this process, to put in place those other measures, which we know they've not been shy about coming forth and saying this is what it's about to them. And that's the greatest concern for me. I can't support treaty because while a nation doesn't hold treaties with its own citizens to begin with, there wasn't a declaration of war for there to be a treaty. I think we've gone past the point of uh, treaty making. And if we're going to be really serious about that, then maybe it needs to occur between different Indigenous groups. I mean, obviously, we had our traditional enemies. We had those that, groups that we married into. But amongst Aboriginal groups, there is still a lot of disagreement. And I fear the voice will become yet another platform for Aboriginal people to disagree on issues and not come to a consensus but we shouldn't be doing things this way. It is a separatist way of doing things. It's treating Indigenous Australians differently to the rest of Australia, and we don't do it to any other racial group of Australians. From all your discussions, Jacinta, are Australians confused between recognition and a voice in the Constitution not being the same? And that's the problem. I think a lot of Australians, including myself and the Coalition, uh, support recognition within our Constitution of Indigenous Australians, but the voice that has been attached to this is the very concerning part about this proposal going forward, the fact that there is no detail, there is no clear demonstration about how it's going to improve anybody's life other than to suggest that it is a simple, benign advisory body and yet the word advice, advice or advisory don't appear anywhere in the question that is being proposed or yeah. the chapter to be amend amending the constitution with so you know that's the that's the biggest concern in, in this trojan horse that's attached to recognition and i guess from the the yes campaign is it we've tried everything else and that's why we're trying this one what's do you think from their side the logic we haven't tried everything else and i think what's happened is now that we have 11 indigenous representatives in our mm -hmm. federal parliament, those who have been the go-to experts uh, are going to become insignificant. They're realising their days are numbered. So this right. is about ensuring their positions in perpetuity going forward. Uh, what we haven't done is we haven't properly uh, inquired into where the funds have been spent. There are those that have been responsible for producing outcomes who haven't produced outcomes. 
through statutory authorities, agencies, organisations, uh, we have a huge mess that exists and we need to clean that mess up. And that is, in fact, what we haven't done yet to ensure that those moving parts are actually producing the outcomes that they've funded millions, if not billions of dollars to do. But for the first time ever in in certainly set of estimates, uh, mm-hmm. the agencies are faced with Indigenous female senators executing the questions, asking the hard questions that I think previous governments have been afraid of being called racist if they asked those questions uh, in the past and allowed to sort of, you know, that, that racism of low expectations is allowed to continue on, um, that standard has been left low and not listed at the same sort of standard we expect for all Australians. And that is what we have to do going forward. That is what we have to change and that's what I'm prepared to do along with my wonderful colleagues, Senator Karen Little and, and our um, coalition colleagues. So we hear the expression closing the gap, Jacinta. How does one close the gap with what you're saying there without going to a referendum and changing the constitution? Sure. Well, I think we have to recognise where, in fact, the gap exists. We have yeah. to have a, a realistic starting point. So the voice suggests that all Indigenous Australians are inherently disadvantaged for no other reason but because of our racial heritage, which we know isn't true. It's 20% of Indigenous Australians are disadvantaged. And if we actually focused as to where that disadvantage exists and prioritise those people, we might actually start to shift the dial. And, of course, in my previous work heading up the Centre for Independent Studies, our Indigenous Research Program, we found that the gap existed between marginalised, remote Indigenous Australians whose first language is not English in remote communities and everybody else, including the growing Aboriginal middle class. And so that is where the gap exists and that is where we have to focus our efforts. Uh, and in fact, if we started to serve Australians on the basis of need and not race, I'm sure we'd actually see a, a huge improvement going forward for our most marginalised Indigenous Australians. So some are claiming the, the voice is a, um, a fourth arm of government. Do you see it as such? Yeah, look, it would have uh, the constitutional power as a body, the same as executive. the executive government is a body, the same as the High Court is a body within the constitution. So it would sit alongside uh, and it is, I guess, misleading to suggest that Parliament would have primacy over it when it has the constitutional power, um, certainly to challenge Parliament. And the fact that it's been suggested that representatives would be selected as opposed to elected is undemocratic as far as yeah. I'm concerned. The principles that our system is based on, it goes against. It's almost like a backdoor into influencing basically the way that our legislators legislate and our uh, parliament and government operates. And when you, and when you break down the actual um, subject matter on the potential amendment, just reading it out loud, it says the voice may make representations to the parliament and the executive government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. What does that actually mean? And I guess the question is, from your experience, where does it begin and where does that end? Well, exactly. Where does it begin and where does it end? Representations is basically running its own agenda. And if the voice becomes radicalised, well, then who knows what the agenda might be and that is thrust upon the Australian government. I mean, the Prime Minister himself has said it would be a very brave government that would ignore uh, the voice. I have no doubt that it would have the opportunity to be weaponised 
um, to push a, a radical activist agenda on the Australian people. And that to me is very concerning. You know, there is no word, advice, advice, uh, or advisory within the question, as I said, or, or the chapter being proposed, uh, which mm. means it can absolutely run its own agenda how it sees fit. Not even opposition has the opportunity to make representations to cab- Prime Minister and Cabinet. Crossbenchers don't get that opportunity. Opposition doesn't get that opportunity. It would be more powerful than opposition and crossbenchers, you know, within Parliament. And and that has the opportunity to up- overturn democracy as we know it, if you like. It, it's, it's something that has not been done anywhere in the world so far. Yeah, look, I, I think ultimately you start to question as well, how's our democracy working in that regard? What needs to be done, Jacinta? Because there's been some sort of failure here by all governments, it sounds like, for a, for a long period of time. So without going down this path, what is the path? Well, I think it's it's a wonderful time now that we have over-representation of Indigenous Australians within Parliament. Um, yep. But my argument would be to, you know, and I've, I've been called a bit radical in terms of my thinking away yep. from separatism because I believe that it's separatism that it's caused us our most marginalised to remain marginalised. It's separatism that has provided the opportunity for an industry to be built on the backs of the misery of our most marginalised. It's always been suggested, well, only Aboriginal people know how to fix Aboriginal people. Well, so far, it hasn't unfolded this way. So we need to stop moving down that path and stop treating people differently on the basis of race. You know, as human beings of different backgrounds, we have the tools, we have the understanding of what it means to overcome adversity, and that is what we need to apply, is common sense and not treating people differently because of their racial heritage, but understanding Indigenous Australians are human. We need to stop framing Indigenous Australians as victims to our um, nation's history and looking backward constantly, because when we teach somebody that they're a victim, Effectively, this removes their agency and, and it places responsibility for their lives into the ethos, if you like, because colonisation isn't going to come along and fix people's lives when it's being blamed for what's, you know, where they're at in terms of their lives. So we have to move away from separatism. We have to inquire into where the money is being spent. We have to p- apply greater accountability in this area to deter mm-hmm. opportunists and to ensure that outcomes are being reached and we have to focus our efforts on where our marginalised actually exist and prioritise their need uh, over those who aren't so marginalised. They're the steps we need to start taking. Okay. And let me flow. Let me put the, the other side to it. If it was successful and it was created, and I think you've met, you sort of touched on it, how is it going to be structured? How often does it meet? And how is it actually going to make the difference that you're talking about? We don't know. Put simply, we don't know any of the answers to any of those questions because we're told it'll all come to fruition after the fact. I have no doubt that the Prime Minister has his idea of what he wants to apply. He has the numbers to create the voice in the image that he wants, regardless of the fact that we're told, you know, as parliamentarians, we will have contribution into this. So far, uh, they don't listen to us. They certainly didn't listen to me when I said, if you lift the alcohol bans in the Northern Territory, yeah. all hell will break loose. And so it did. 
and they have to clean up and come along and clean up the mess when they could have avoided that in the first place. So uh, obviously we as the coalition would hold the government to account to ensure the least destructive model of a voice is is brought about, but there Mm. can be no guarantees going forward. Mm, Okay. This is a leadership podcast. I guess I'll be, I'm interested in understanding what drove you to serve. Why did you start out on this whole path all those years ago? Well, I think I've worked with my parents as a cross-cultural educator for a couple of decades, and it was largely based on our family situation, having a Warpbury mother and a white Australian father and wanting to bring about understanding for the benefit of workplaces and families and all that sort of thing, especially in a place like the Northern Territory where almost 40% Indigenous population. And knowing what I know and having grown up in a close to traditional context, my mother's first language is Warpbury, being a Warpbury speaker myself and understanding traditional culture, I thought it was always really important to ensure that we know things from a factual perspective. And I think there's been a yearning for the Australian people to understand better, but that void has been filled with guilt politics and identity politics as opposed to just facts for the benefit of creating understanding. And my mother obviously became a minister in the Giles government. She was elected in 2012. And I also put my hand up to sit on Alice Springs Town Council in 2015 and my mother was the minister for local government at the time so she swore me into that and having watched her experience and knowing that we wanted to bring about better outcomes by starting from an honest place I thought this is my opportunity to have a go federally that's where I sort of aimed for and uh, and obviously you know the rest is history but Mm. I just think we were just really frustrated with the way Indigenous politics has been shaped and the narrative that's come about. And we shouldn't be making demands out of grievance. You can't make good policy out of grievance. It has to come from a place of facts, evidence and truth uh, in order to tackle some of the situations that, you know, our family are amongst some of the most marginalised in the country. And we don't want to see them suffer anymore. We don't want to be burying our family members anymore when their lives, the the reasons for their deaths um, could have been prevented. So that's basically why. And Why are we we having the full and frank discussion? You know, in a few minutes, we're probably going to talk about some of the domestic violence that happens. Why aren't we having the full and open discussion? Because at the end of the day, Australians, I would have thought the majority of Australians, are not racist. The admiration to the Indigenous is second to none. So why don't we try to solve it as opposed to, as you say, present a different light? Because when you start talking honestly, you show others up. And I think Australians have been captured by guilt politics and now identity politics. And if we call out and say the emperor has no clothes, we're now the bad guys. And when it's come to the issue of domestic and family violence, which is another issue that I've advocated on as well as my mother, Mm. we... We've been wanting to tackle it from an honest perspective in that where it is most prevalent in remote communities is where traditional culture still plays a huge role. So things like cultural payback, the fact that women are second rate to men. Uh, we haven't had our feminist movement. You know, that young girls are still arranged, married off in arranged marriages. No one wants to hear those. For those Indigenous Australians who have largely 
unfortunately because of our history, lost their culture and language, often romanticise about what culture is. And their narrative is, is stronger because they've had an education, they've got access to media. They want to maintain that sort of romanticism around culture, whereas those just living it day to day are suffering as a result of those aspects that are detrimental. And so my mother and I have been trying to call out those detrimental aspects for the purpose of progressing forward and supporting those victims, marginalised victims. And we're often called sellouts or that, you know, we're, we're betraying our own people. It's, it's a bit like telling someone who's been part of a Catholic church, don't call out the sexual abuse that's happened in your church, otherwise you're selling out your church. Yep. But there's this different way of thinking when it comes to Indigenous Australians that we're not allowed to do that. But I'm here to say that's got to stop and that's what I'll continue to do and pursue this for the benefit of improving the lives of those who are victimised. So on the platform as a senator, you made, you made a very good speech, and a very first speech. What are you actually setting out to achieve? True equality, really, ensuring that we hold the same standards for all Australians, including Indigenous Australians, um, that we uphold the human rights of our vulnerable women and children and recognise our own responsibilities as Indigenous Australians in this instead of consistently blaming the past, colonisation and governments, the only way towards self-empowerment is taking responsibility uh, and that can be done. And there are many Aboriginal Australians who are doing that. But instead of the, again, it's a, I want to step away from uh, the separatism in order to achieve those things and that's, that's largely why I, I've gone down this path. We've got to think outside the box and stop doing the same thing over again which is creating bureaucracies, the only difference with the voice is putting it in our constitution, which won't magically make it effective. <laughs> so when does this great melting pot of Australia move forward? I think we've been on a forward trajectory, and I think in recent times because of identity politics and this whole sort of thing that's going on between you know people wanting to view themselves as victims and tick a box, I think that slowed things down. You know, woke culture has slowed us down. It's taken the Western world by storm, including oh, yeah. Australia. And I think we need to reject it and get back on the path we were on toward progressing our country uh, together uh, as, as proud Australians. That's what we need to do. We need to get back to our wonderful shared Australian values and what it means to be proud to call ourselves uh, Australian as a nation again. So your comments regarding colonisation... Um, obviously stirred stirred it somewhat. Were you surprised by the the feedback that you received? No, I mean, I wasn't surprised. I know The Guardian and the ABC like to focus on uh, maintaining Aboriginal people as victims uh, and removing our agency and, you know, somehow thinking that guilt politics is supposed to improve our lives. So it didn't surprise me the reaction that I got. But I tell you what, there's not a proponent of a voice that would swap their life for the lives of Aboriginal Australians pre-colonisation. There is not a single one of them that would do that and they are amongst some of the most, uh, have benefited the most from supposed colonisation uh, and we have to be realistic as to what we've got now in comparison to what we, we do have. While you know life expectancy is greater than it was pre-colonisation, uh, infant mortality rates have gone down and continue to trend down uh, okay. as a result. And so there are, there are heaps of benefits 
it doesn't, you know, tie the victimhood narrative that many like to continue with. Yeah, I guess ultimately, aren't we all um, immigrants to this country? Um, the Aboriginal peoples came from a different country 50 to 70,000 years ago. Uh, the Brits came here in 1788, 1770. Dutch came and there was colonisation, whether we like it or not. Are we going to accept that or what happens here? Yeah, look, there's not a nation on the face of the earth that I don't think has, has not been colonised. This is global history. This is the human experience the world over. And for some reason, people like to think that Indigenous Australians are exceptional. We're not. You know, this has happened to us, to humans around the globe. I mean, you know, my husband talks about the fact that the Scots were colonised 200 years before Aboriginal people were colonised and they haven't managed to defeat the English yet. But again, also it's part of the human um, story is overcoming adversity regardless of the circumstances that we're confronted with. But viewing oneself as a victim doesn't allow for you to progress or move forward. It's not, em- it's not empowering and it's not empowerment and empowerment has to come from within, not bestowed upon us from an outside entity. Why is the guilt being so successful? Not, it's not just here either. It's, it's all parts around the world. Yeah, look, I think white culture has been very aggressive, you know, regardless of it about creating tolerance and acceptance and accepting everybody. It's the opposite, and it's been the opposite. This is cultural Marxism that we're also experiencing. It's about controlling humans, divide and conquer, and, you know, we're seeing it unfold with, with this white culture that's going on throughout the Western world, which is effectively uh, weakening the Western world and, you know, Australia, if we don't get our act together, we could be vulnerable to, you know, to other global forces that want to take advantage of uh, of the fact that our young people aren't prepared to be proud to call themselves Australian and stand up should there be another world war. I mean, these are the things we've got to be realistic about um, going forward, which is why uh, woke culture is so uh, insidious. Uh, and, and we have to call it out. As leaders, we have to call it out and we can't allow it as we move forward. Welcome to country. Your, your thoughts around that? See, I'm a traditionalist. I know, I, I know, you know, in terms of traditional culture, it's not something that we did traditionally. I mean, if you really want to be serious about entering uh, another language group's country, you have to start a fire and indicate with the smoke that you're on the approach and then continue to do so. And then you greet whoever's country it is you're walking into and explain that you're walking through there respectfully and move on. I mean, that was a traditional concept, but this is a this is a cultural reinvention which is going on. And for me, as somebody who understands traditional Aboriginal culture, I can't accept it because of the fact that it's a reinvention. I think, you know, it's become part of our every day now. It's overdone and I feel like, you know, use it for special occasions or if there's international dignitaries uh, visiting, but generally Australians are feeling alienated within their own country, the place of their birth, and that's wrong. That That's wrong. Uh, you know, and for those activists who take an opportunity to, to, to use their activism and, and push guilt politics onto Australians, I think that's wrong, you know, doing that sort of thing through welcome to country. So uh, I just... I just don't think it's really inclusive and all-encompassing and it's it's certainly overdone. It's not traditional. Uh, If it has to be done, do it for special occasions, but take it or leave it for me. 
What's the allocation from the federal and state governments to the Indigenous people? There's roughly about over $30 billion a year that is allocated in the Indigenous space for, you know, for various different things. Yep. And, you know, that, that that's a pretty huge sum. I think it's $100 million a day um, that is spent in that space. And we have to utilise taxpayer funds a hell of a lot better than what we have been. And we can't just keep throwing money at problems uh, thinking that that's going to fix the issue. We have to be far more concise. We have to be far more diligent and we have to deter opportunists when it comes to the spending yeah. uh, of taxpayers' funds in that way. Yeah, look, no, obviously it's more than money, but the 30-plus billion, over how many people are we talking now? Well, we're, we're talking 3% of the population, basically. So there's roughly about 800,000, but obviously there, there has been a huge leap in terms of those who have ticked the census box and claimed yeah. indigeneity in this country, which is obviously yeah. another concern, which is a huge concern for a lot of Aboriginal people as well. Is it insulting to the Aboriginal people? It's deeply insulting for a lot of Aboriginal people. You know, it's fair enough to find out that you've got an ancestor that was Indigenous, but that doesn't make you Indigenous. I'm, you know, I've got a great-great-great-grandmother who was Irish, but I'm not Irish. But ultimately, we should be viewing ourselves as Australians, and I think that's that's what the industry has created. It's created pushing for people who say, "Oh, well, if I tick this box, and you know, there are opportunities if I start calling myself Indigenous in in many different various forms." And so, opportunists are taking advantage of that, and that's not right. I guess because you see, in the last seven or eight nine years, the the emotion of words has come through. Um, I think even Indigenous, you can split that many different ways, the definition of Indigenous as well come, means comes from this country. I could put my hand up and say I was born here just as much as I guess you were. But that's, that's, another, that's another debate in itself. But, but I guess in that, that language has been, been used a lot. Where do Australians, you know, is it Aboriginal peoples and Torres Strait Islanders? Is it First Nations? Is it First Australians? What is appropriate? Because again, it's coming at you left, right and centre. I've got Aboriginal heritage as far as I'm concerned. Academics yep. like to rework everything and suggest that some words are now offensive to people. And, you know, if you're just sitting around waiting to be offended, well, you're not getting much done. And I don't accept First Nations because that's a Canadian term as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Uh, we weren't nations. We were language groups or tribes, if you like. Yep. Uh, and But you're right, that point about People being born here are Indigenous. Yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> but that thinking is also something that I was brought up with. And my Aranda elders and Warpri elders taught me, you know, well, you're taught as an Aboriginal person when, that when you're conceived, your conception site is where your baby spirit has leapt from the ground into your mother's belly, giving yes. you your personal dreaming and connection to this country. And my elders taught me that it didn't matter what your racial heritage was, if you were conceived in Australia, your conception site, your baby spirit has come from there and you hold part of the dreaming and the creator ancestor's spirit within you too. And that, that's how I was brought up. And that to me is what it means to be human from an Aboriginal perspective and somebody who belongs to this country. The reason I bring it up is, is, is around words and the interpretation of words. If we look at the voice and the interpretation of the voice and it's all the solicitors and constitutional lawyers are looking at it at the moment, how much time are we going to be spending in the High Court? Well, that's it, isn't it? I mean, 
that's the problem with the fact that the voice has every opportunity to be weaponized if the government of the day decides that they don't want to accept the representations that are being made and the demands that are being made by the voice on them. So it will have the constitutional right to challenge within the High Court. I mean, if you think about it, uh, determining it's the executive that determines the the appointments of High Court judges. The voice might very well say, this matter affects Indigenous Australians and we want to say on who the next High Court judge is. And if they want, they could you know, insist that one of their uh, radical High Court judges sit on the High Court and make determinations in favour of the voice and set precedents in that fashion. So where does it start and where does it end, basically? You're in campaign mode. You're up against, was it 50 million from the other side in terms of budget Plus. allocation <laughs> or supposed uh, support? What have you got in terms of funds and how are you going about engaging Australia? Well, we have around 29,000 um, everyday Australians that put their hand in their pocket to make donations, you know, $50 here, $100 there. I think um, the, the Yes campaign have got a handful of donors, I think 15 or, or so and maybe a bit more corporates who have just poured millions of dollars into their campaign. This is about, you know, on the no side, we have everyday Australians, grassroots Australians who are jumping on board because they love this country, who don't believe in dividing us along the lines of race. And we've been very strategic because we have had to make every dollar work for us in terms of the no campaign. And I mean, we're asking, well, where's all the millions going with the Yes campaign? And why haven't they produced that secret weapon ad that was going to wipe us out? But then again, you know, if you look at the makeup of the, the proponents of The Voice, well, there are those that have been responsible for millions of dollars in the past and they haven't produced the outcomes. So what is going to make them produce the outcomes that they want from the millions of dollars that are being poured into the Yes campaign, I guess? And in your conversation with, the, the, the Aboriginal peoples and Torres Strait Islanders, what are they sitting there looking at at the moment? They're wondering what, you know, how they're going to escape a violent situation within their community. They're looking at okay. how they're going to uh, ensure that they get to their next dialysis appointment. They're, they're looking at all these everyday issues that are going on on the ground. Uh, a lot of Aboriginal people don't even know what's going on in terms of their voice. I've had conversations with those who come from a Christian background who don't like this idea of the voice and feel like they've been disregarded and not heard in this debate. There are those that don't want to be divided along the lines of race in this country and who see us all as Australians and are concerned that, yet again, it is the handful of elites that are seeking this constitutional transfer of power to them who will continue to ignore those grassroots individuals who this, this voice claims it's going to represent going forward. And they're trying to understand, like in the Northern Territory, it's been proposed they'll have two or three representatives. Well, who are those two or three representatives going to be? How are yeah. they going to be elected? If it's through traditional means, well then, and they're claiming something about men and women, men, it's a patriarchal society. So the toughest usually aggressively make their way to the top. And is that what this is being left open to do going forward? 
there are all kinds of concerns that are brought forward from Indigenous people, many Aboriginal people that I speak to about this voice. And they're just saying, many, you know, from Bush communities saying to me, oh, I'm not supporting this, but they'll do it quietly. They'll say it quietly. They're not about to come out because they know the very real uh, threat that hangs over their head if they um, are public about their views. Quite a number of people have called the Prime Minister through this process being deceitful in the sense of not coming out with the full information as you've you've outlined there. What what are your thoughts around that? Look, I I, I agree. You know, the fact that the Prime Minister keeps downplaying what this is on one side, um, but then telling those on the other side, no, this is about, you know, this is about all the things that you're talking about, treaty, truce, you know, reparations. he's, He's playing both sides here. Also claiming to just focus on the question entirely but suggesting it's an advisory group well we know it's not just a benign advisory group that is misleading that is misleading the australian people the fact that he couldn't even admit that the uluru statement while the statement itself you know is that first piece of paper that there's 25 other pages that sit behind it that highlight what the voice proponents want from this process and downplaying that and saying well you know if (laughs) Basically saying that those pages don't exist, but the facts remain was that he didn't actually read those pages, and that is deeply concerning. So if he's prepared to back this all the way without knowing any of that, he is taking Australian, the Australian people up the garden path. If it is a no, Saturday afternoon, or Sunday morning when the counting is um, well and truly um, done, how do we move forward? Well, it's going to be tough because... This is probably the most divisive referendum we've faced as a nation and there's going to have to be a lot of work that needs to be done to bring us all together. I mean, if anything, I think it's galvanised support for those who love this country, who believe, uh, you know, we should all be together and not separated along the lines of race. I think that's a good starting point. I think we'll probably see the proponents of the voice, those that have had to temper their real feelings toward Australians, I think you'll see them boil over and we'll see their character. Again, their true characters and the name-calling, I, I have no doubt, will occur. But we need to stop and really reflect on what we've just been through and get back to what it means to be Australian and our Australian spirit. But I think Australians will feel less afraid now to be to be more forthright in believing in our country uh, and believing in, in everyone to be respected as uh, individuals and Australian citizens without a race tag or a gender tag or any other kind of box that we're being shoved into nowadays. Where, where are you seeing the spread of who's voting no and who's voting yes, Jacinta? Well, obviously, uh, Queensland and Western Australia are you know, reflecting that they're, they're tremendous, in tremendous support of the no vote. Um, you know, I'm sitting in South Australia at the minute in Adelaide uh, and I've got to visit Tassie soon too, so it's Tasmania and in, in South Australia that we want to make sure we can get over the line. Uh, I'm quietly confident, but I'm certainly not complacent. I don't necessarily think that Victoria and New South Wales are off the table either. Okay. Uh, but, you know, in terms of our resources for the No Campaign, we really have to focus on our battleground states, uh, which have been Queensland, Western Australia, Tassie and South Australia. Anything in regards male, female, young, old, immigrants from the 60s, onwards yeah look it's really interesting i mean it's obviously the older generation that are tending to vote more no 
but we're also seeing a shift in the in younger people as well uh, okay. that young people are also leaning more toward no than yes at the moment where traditionally you know they'd be more sort of yes and I think I think this time that families are really having those conversations and I think you know if you look at the the marriage plebiscite I think younger people were influencing the older people in that in that plebiscite whereas I think this time around the older generation are are sitting down with their grandchildren and their kids and saying, listen, this is a really important decision. You need to think about it. So I've been in a couple of situations where, you know, I've been sat with parents and their children and I've said, look, can you just provide the opportunity for our child to question you and and ask about why you support the no? And I've had those sorts of conversations. And, I mean, we're, we're, seeing, we're seeing, you know, traditional Labor voters absolutely against this voice as well they can't believe that Albanese has taken it this far and, and I've had those yeah that have reached out to me and said listen I'm I'm a Labor voter but I just cannot support this I can't believe we're actually confronted with this as well so I mean when it all comes out in the wash afterwards it'll be really interesting to see what the demographics look like so hypothetically again what happens if the yes campaign wins Saturday slash Sunday and can you explain to me how Macarada works as well? Yeah, so uh, again, you know, it's going to be a divided nation regardless of the outcome at the end of it. Yep. I think activists um, will be emboldened to go forward. I think there'll be a lot of throwing it back in everyone's faces who, um, you know, who voted no. I think, you know, I, I, I'm concerned. I, I'm really concerned about what that looks like going forward. I think there are still the accusations of, you know, racism. I mean, the personal attacks have come from proponents of the yes um, vote toward those of us on the other side. They've been very personalised, name-calling and those sorts of things. And, of course, Ray Martin's the latest to have come out with that kind of name-calling. And my concern is those individuals would just be emboldened and that they think they can continue with that um, kind of behaviour. So uh, makarata is the Yolngu word, which actually means payback. It's a form of payback. It's when someone's thought to have done the wrong thing. To achieve justice, they have to present themselves for a spear in the leg. Uh, they have to be maimed so as not to be able to hunt or take care of themselves. And my concern is when activists are using this terminology and proponents of the voice, who are they suggesting should be offering themselves up for a tribal punishment? You know, is this this is the form of reparation that these activists are seeking from the Australian people? We've heard people use language around, well, you know, the colonizers have benefited from the stole from this stolen land. When they mean colonizers, they actually mean white Australians. Are they suggesting that, you know, those who are born here and call Australia home uh, are supposed to repent some way, and, and I don't like that kind of language. I don't. I don't like. It's almost like um, you know a declaration of war type language, and I, I, I don't stand for it, and I don't support it. The Uluru Statement incorporates that there will be a um, a treaty, right? But a lot of the state governments have already started down that process. Just haven't been quite advanced in their discussions. So how is this all going to work out? We've already got states signing up to treaties or discussing treaties. How does this all play out then? They're all, all rushing ahead of themselves. They all want to appear virtuous. They all want to, 
know, they all think it's a good idea and I think the chickens will all come home to roost at some point and we've seen it in Victoria. Dan Andrews is now, he's like, well, I'm out of here. <laughs> he's seen how the, the um, Europe group, which has come out of the, their some treating processes, have determined that they want to create separate laws for specifically for Indigenous Victorians, that they want a different child protection system for uh, Indigenous children of Indigenous heritage in Victoria. You know, they, they, this, these are the sorts of demands that will be made by these processes going forward, demands being made out of grievance, not about actual, you know, creating policy to improve people's lives. In the Northern Territory, Tony McAvoy is a proponent of The Voice who was the Treaty Commissioner, appointed the Treaty Commissioner, he's never lived by traditional culture in his life, but has provided in his recommendations that cultural customary law should be recognised and respected. No, we're Australia. We should, it's one law for us all. And what I want to know from people like Mr McAvoy is what part of customary law are you suggesting we should uphold and respect? The part where women can be punished for committing certain crimes in a marriage, um, where she can be beaten, where she can be, uh, you know, where women can be subject to brutal um, sexual assault uh, for committing crimes in traditional customary law. Like these are people that don't have a clue about what customary law involves, what traditional law and culture involves. And this is the problem with treaty making processes. And for, especially in Victoria, no one knows why traditional culture in Victoria. So who's culturally informing their processes and who's going to uh, debunk anything that they determine is traditional culture um, that could very well be made up? You know, it's it's a dog's breakfast as far as I'm concerned. If the no wins to set up, are the lives going to change? You've got the highest crime rate, you've got in and out of jail, marriage problems, drinking problems, shorter life. Either way, but just say you're successful, is it going to change? And if so, if we go back to your platform and your longer-term vision, what's the vision then and, and how long is it going to take? Well, it, it'll take some time because this current federal government is not interested in actually addressing the problems that are before us or listening to uh, issues such as, you know, in the Northern Territory in Alice Springs, we have got Yipper in the school, which has had a proposal before Minister Burney for well over 12 months now, seeking the building of uh, accommodation for staff and students for our most vulnerable kids in our community who are on the streets at 2 o'clock in the morning. And if she can ignore that proposal and there's still $100 million unallocated for Central Australia to deal with the issues of crime, then she can ignore anything. And I think we're going to have to wait till the next federal um, election, I think, until we can win back government to put in place practical, real measures and solutions towards supporting our most vulnerable within our communities. But until then, I don't see much progress occurring other than waiting for the Australian people to ensure that we as a coalition will at some point announce policies, uh, our platforms going forward to make those realistic changes uh, into the future. And, Senator, those realistic changes, do they have to be quite radical or what, what are we talking about? Because... I'm not going to go down and say the current Labor government or the previous government. It's been going on for a long time. We've all been watching it. So it's, it's got to be some significant change here. And you're the opposition ahead of this. In the vision there, Jacinta, what do you foresee in that sense of 
Brett, let's just words at the moment, but is there anything you can leave us with? Like what big ideas could we actually start thinking about? Well, you know, I mean, like I said, uh, you know, we've been told that holding an inquiry is not the way to go, but the inquiry, what that would do is provide an opportunity for those who have been failed by the agencies, the organisations, to talk about how it has affected them, to understand how the current systems, how it's not actually working so that we can fix them from there. And that's what we haven't done yet. That's what certainly, you know, Labor, the Greens and Senator Pocock don't want uh, for that. I mean, I've sat in Senator Pocock's office with uh, a traditional owner who was effectively written out of native title. Native title is a dog's breakfast and it needs to be tidied up. All she wanted was to ensure that her family, who had previously been recognised as traditional owners and then written out of the history books, are just re-established as such in their in their right. For places like the Northern Territory, things that I want to do is to the Central Land Council, the Northern Land Council, uh, basically their positions are redundant. Right, okay. Traditional owners should have the opportunity to utilise their land to be job creators in their own right. As it stands, those opportunities don't come by often for them because as traditional owners have to apply for um, leases to use their own land if they wanted to build a bakery if they wanted to set up a tourism venture and the lease process which goes through the land councils is either held up doesn't eventuate or there's a reason for it to not get up we need to make sure that we are encouraging uh, the opportunity for traditional owners to be job creators to step away from the welfare mentality yeah but land councils don't want to relinquish their power there's millions if not billions of dollars in royalties that flow through those organisations and evidently they are not being utilised to the benefit of our most marginalised. They're the systems that I want to pursue in order to fix, in order to develop better structures for people in those marginalised areas to move away from welfare and to be opportunity creators for themselves. As we come to the referendum, Jacinta, what's your message to the Australian people? My message to the Australian people is, look, we can't accept bullying, we can't accept gaslighting, we can't accept emotional blackmail. It's not good enough that the Prime Minister is saying it'll make you feel better about yourself if you vote yes. It's not about feeling better about oneself. That would indicate that people have been made to feel, made to feel guilty about our country's history. That is no way to move forward or bring about opportunity to improve the lives of our most marginalised. The only way that's going to come about is through self-empowerment, but that's not going to be done through an unknown entity that's functions are at to this point unknown, that are not known, will not be known on October 14 um, or any time uh, after that. This is a gamble that the, the our Prime Minister is asking Australians to take with, and we have very deeply held concerns about making such a huge amendment to our constitution which affects all Australians. There are other ways forward. I'm certainly pursuing those other ways forward as well as my colleague, Senator Karen Little, uh, with the coalition. So this isn't the only opportunity to improve people's lives through this referendum. That is is one of the most misleading claims um, that we've heard. 
and I encourage Australians to vote no at the up-and-coming referendum. If you were to look back, Jacinta, at that young girl growing up in Alice Springs all those years ago, and it's been a very fast career step in politics, what advice would you give her now? Make better decisions as a teenager. <laughs> um, oh, look, I think I'd say, look, always, you know, continue to believe in yourself. I was one of these people, you know, teenagers I know find it hard and difficult to be oneself and be, be happy to be oneself because there's always pressure from your peers and the way you think others might think of you. But I've always, I've always thought, you know what, I don't care what others think about me. It's none of my business. <laughs> I know who I am. I know what I'm capable of. I'm, I'm, I belong to this world. I have something to contribute. And I think all young people and people in general should believe that they have something to contribute to their families, to their communities. But, yep, I think I'd just say to myself, just lay off the carbs. I bet you, Sina. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us today. No worries. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to No Limitations.